Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Michael Polson, professor of ecology and evolution at University of Copenhagen. And we're going to talk about um, the co-evolutionary history of fungus growing insect microbe associations, which sounds really cool. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited. If you would, tell me about your uh, research. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm fundamentally very interested in understanding better the origin, evolution, and stability of uh, of beneficial symbiosis, so interactions, um, beneficial interactions between species uh, for various you know purposes. And this is uh, something that I've been working on for about twenty years now in a variety of different host symbiont uh, associations, mostly in insects, but also in uh, in a few uh, mammals and some birds. And most of what um, mostly I've been working with fungus farming uh, ants and termites, ants that are in Central and South America, and termites in in Africa and Asia. And uh, some of the things that we um, we focus on in my group is to understand how these different species work together, how they evolve in parallel over time, how they optimize the services they provide for each other, and how natural selection does that, and then um, how these complex communities are assembled and remain stable. Uh, and fu- fundamentally how they work. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is understanding better how they defend themselves from diseases, which in the in the fungus farming termites seems to be extremely efficient. And they don't seem to have any problems with disease, which is, of course, quite sharp contrast to how um, it is with us humans, for example. Well, what kind of creatures are you talking about? What, what associations have you observed that are particularly interesting to you? So the termites uh, are, so it's an old group. They originated about 30 million years ago in Africa, and they uh, cultivate a, a specific fungus uh, in, in these underground fungus gardens. And um, that's always just a single clone of fungus. Uh, but what we've then discovered over the years is that not only do they have these this fungus, but they also have complex bacterial communities, both in the guts of the insects themselves, but also in these fungus gardens. And, um, and then we've, we've basically been working to try to understand uh, how specific these associations are, what roles the bacteria play, and, and, uh, and how they, um, yeah, in, in, what, in what they help the termites with, essentially. And then um, because they're very specific, so you have essentially, and one of the things that I find extremely interesting is that if you take colonies from e- even hundreds of kilometers apart, then, uh, and you take workers from these different colonies, then the composition of these bacterial communities within the gut, even though they're very diverse, there can maybe be thousands of species or strains of bacteria, then the compositions are always almost com- uh, exactly the same between nests. So they seem to be very specific and, and very tightly regulated somehow. And we try to understand why, why this is the case. And why this is very important for how the um, how they work these communities in uh, in association with the termites. So, what do the termites do? They build fungus gardens and they cultivate fungus. 
Yes, they basically, uh, so they build these uh, these mounds and then within the mounds, they have these fungal gardens and then the termites cultivate essentially as we cultivate crops, they cultivate this fungus on a plant material that they bring back from outside the nest. So they the termites then eat this substrate, this plant substrate, it can be wood or grass, and then uh, their feces actually becomes the, the manure or the substrate for the for the fungus to grow on. And the fungus then takes care of breaking down all of the plant components like cellulose, for example, that uh, the termites cannot degrade themselves. And then in doing so, the fungus then grows, generates biomass, and this biomass is then what the termites uh, eat and get nutrition from. So it's essentially like growing a, a fungal crop. And then um, the bacteria work in, in different ways in facilitating this, uh, this uh, process. So we know that it's now, that it's clear that, that it's a combination of enzymes that come both from the termite host itself, also from the, this fungal cultivar, and from bacteria that uh, collectively mean that the termites can utilize this plant biomass extremely efficiently. So basically, they after it has been through the fungus garden and the termites have eaten the fungal biomass, there's no organic material left uh, of what originally came in with the plant biomass. So this means they've over time been optimized to very effectively utilize this um, this, this substrate and get all the nutrition out from it. What do you believe the coevolution is? I mean, how did... How do you believe that uh, termites first realized they could cultivate this fungus? And how did they know that it wouldn't hurt them or how to cultivate it? Like, how do you think all this came about? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's, it's hard to go, go back in time that way. But what we, what we think likely happened was that they were, so the ancestors of the fungus growing termites were, were also social and living in these colonies. And then likely it was uh, at some point, coincidentally, a, a fungus appeared there or was close to the nest and somehow provided the benefit. So this has likely been the starting point for the origin of this association. And then it has been, because it was then likely a selective advantage, so the colonies that had this fungus, or the the initial starting colony that had the fungus, uh, did particularly well, then it has been propagated over time. So it likely started as a looser association, and then over time became very specific. So neither the fungus or the termites can actually live without each other now. So over time, they've co-evolved to uh, to become very specific and completely dependent on each other. And it's somewhat the similar pattern, likely with the bacteria. So we knew that the so that the ancestors, so all other termites, now also the ancestral cockroaches, have these complex bacterial communities in the guts, and uh, the fungus farming termites do as well. But these communities have then changed as a consequence of of uh, fungi culture. So they look different from what you would see in other termites. And one thing that we showed quite recently was that they, the bacteria no longer seem to produce a lot of the enzymes that are needed to, uh, to break down cellulose, for example. So this is what the, the fungus is particularly good at and has a, the set of enzymes for. So there's likely been selection to change the microbial communities to serve other functions. And one of these functions is likely that they um, contribute to break down uh, the fungal biomass. So they have a lot of these enzymes that are needed to uh, to break down and cleave the, the fungal cell wall rather than, than the plant cell wall that we see in other terms. So the interaction between termites and the fungi, what, uh, again, as a restatement, what compounds are the termites using and in what way and what compounds are the termites giving to the fungi? Are they directly feeding them? You know, what does the culturing look like? Yeah, so what they do is they, they can use quite a broad range of different plant substrates. So this it would typically be decaying wood uh, or grass, uh, either live or dead grass. 
and then they ingest it and that that serves the termites ingested which serves to macerate it so uh, and then they actually eat spores from the fungus at the same time and then this mix uh, that then becomes the feces is actually this these fungal gardens that you that you can then see uh, within uh, within the colony underground so um and then so it's essentially like a like a garden that they then take care of they remove unwanted fungi uh, so that it's extremely clean they um, produce antimicrobial compounds themselves and likely also use compounds from uh, from bacteria that contribute to inhibiting potential um, potential diseases that could spread within this fungus garden so very much like when we use pesticides for example to uh, to uh, to remove uh, weeds or or use uh, antibiotics to prevent diseases or hit diseases that we are infected with and this is an area that we are exploring in a lot more detail now because so in in part through a through an European research council grant to to understand better how the termites are so effective at at uh, preventing diseases so as i mentioned they have um they don't seem to have any problems with infectious diseases so uh, so colonies are extremely clean and very well you know very um very well preserved uh, in a sense and normally you would expect that that whenever you have this accumulation of resources the fungus is a very good uh, resource for for uh, for example pathogenic fungi or competitors you would expect that these uh, pathogens uh, should should try to uh, to uh, invade and and pro- would be able to proliferate very quickly but that doesn't seem to be the case and what we think is happening is that the termites use this multi-layered of de- multi-layer defense so in addition to monitoring and removing unwanted pathogens or potential pathogens or competitors manually uh, behaviorally then they also have these chemical compounds themselves in the, in glands in the head that are anti antimicrobial and then uh, likely also antimicrobial compounds that are present within within these fungus gardens that uh, that seem to suppress things that that come in so that basically means that they they have these multi layers that that prevent diseases from establishing before we continue i've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now which has led to 2700 plus interviews of clinicians researchers scientists ceos and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But you would then think that these diseases are selected to try to overcome these different barriers, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So they must have, uh, they must be doing this in an extremely sustainable way and in a way that prevents uh, resistance evolving. And this is, uh, this is what we're trying to address now by looking at what chemical compounds are actually present within the fungal gardens to understand better whether or not the termites use compounds from themselves, from bacteria, or even from the, the fungal cultivar to prevent um, diseases from invading and spreading. And it looks like it's, you, it's a combination. You think, oh, you don't know yet, or do you know? Go ahead. Well, we, we, we have quite a few, we have a lot of indications that there are many chemical compounds there. So over the years, we've isolated a lot of bacteria that produce antimicrobial compounds 
Uh, we've also discovered a lot of new compounds in collaborations with chemists who are doing the structural elucidation. And we recently showed that that if you take, if you do chemical extractions from these complex communities, then you get a very large number of, of chemical features or likely chemical compounds present. And many of these are related to metabolism. It can also be amino acids, et cetera. But a lot of them are, are likely to be small uh, molecules that could be antimicrobial. So, um, so it really looks like it's this, that what antagonists would meet when they enter a fungus comb like this is a, is a complex, um, is a complex mixture of compounds uh, that are very, that are very hard to overcome. So if many of these have antimicrobial properties, then it's this, uh, it's like using a lot of different antibiotics in one go, which makes it very difficult for pathogens to overcome uh, or to, to uh, establish and, and obtain resistance. So we think this is probably a, a key point, this use of multiple compounds simultaneously to help prevent the pathogens for establishing. Have you characterized the uh, the fungi to look to see if there's uh, only one species that is cultivated by the termites, or have you looked at the microbiome, for instance, of the termites and see, you know, interaction with the fungi before and after how it changes their microbiome? There might be some interesting, you know, metabolites back and forth or interactions there. Yeah, that's actually a very good question, and we we're working on that at the very at the moment actually. So the so it's quite interesting that um, so the a colony is started by a king and a queen. So they come from their natal nest or their parent nest, and then they meet up and they uh, signal to each other using pheromones. When they find each other, they start the nest. And they um, it's long been assumed that they also bring um, bring bacteria with them uh, in the guts. And in some species, they bring the the fungus as well, and they start the fungus garden right away. But in most species, they actually don't bring the fungus so they just start with bacterial communities and they start they live off the resources they they basically have uh, in their bodies for a, a period of time several months before they before the first workers then will go out into the environment bring back substrate and and accidentally or coincidentally bring back a fungus as well that they then establish so um so we're right now looking at um at uh, exactly what the role what the composition is of the microbes uh, in these kings and queens uh, when they come from their parent nests and when they establish the, the colonies. And then in a different project, looking at what happens when you have this shift from a, a young colony where you only have the king and queen and a few workers and the, the first soldiers. And then afterwards, when they get the, the fungus established. So it's very likely that the, that the compositions, so you would expect to have different needs for the, for the insects before and after because they don't have the fungal source uh, to eat from. So it's very likely that bacteria compensate by, by helping break down plant components, for example, or obtaining nutrition from this plant soil mix that they eat before they get the fungus. Uh, to to change afterwards once the fungus gardens, uh, but essentially nothing is known about these details at the moment. But it's we're working on with a, on a couple of projects to try to understand this better. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, ants do the same thing, right? They culture fungus and some of their nests. Certain kinds of ants. Yeah, so there's this uh, this monophyletic group of uh, of ants in Central and South America that uh, that do the same, and they. Um, They've also been very successful and they've become dominant uh, herbivores in, um, in the new world. And they actually bring, so here queens will actually bring the fungus with them. So she will start a colony uh, fungus garden with, uh, with a small piece of fungus from the colony she came from. 
So this means she has the fungus present immediately in contrast with the termites where we mostly see them establish the, the fungus comb later on. And one really interesting difference between the two systems, even though they are in parallel, there are a lot of similar similarities because of, of the way they cultivate fungus externally, they use plant biomass as the substrate for the fungus, and they associate with, with uh, bacteria as well that like to play important roles. But in contrast to the termites, there's a specific fungal pathogen in, uh, in the ants that, uh, that seems to have co-evolved to specifically use the ant fungus as, uh, as its host. And this um, pathogen is, uh, is potentially quite virulent, so it can have quite a big effect on colonies. And the ants have um, several different defense mechanisms to, in place to try to cope with this disease. And one of them, and this was actually uh, the main focus of my postdoc work, what is, um, is bacteria growing on the bodies of the ants. And, they, um, and these bacteria produce antimicrobial compounds. Uh, and this was actually when it was first discovered in, back in 99, what, what, um, what really triggered my interest in, in these defensive symbioses where you have bacteria producing antimicrobials to help um, to help fight the disease. But do you, so, th- you think that it's accidental? I mean, it seems like, you know, the ants certainly know. And once the fungus is there, they, they work with it and the termites do too. So how could it be accidental? No, no they certainly recognize, uh, recognize the presence of the fungus. It's more a question of whether or how they get it, I guess, uh, established in the, in the beginning. Uh, and we think in the termites that it's, uh, it's unlikely that they will be able to recognize um, spores of the fungus uh, in the environment, but that it's more coincidental that they bring spores back. And then once the fungus starts growing, they recognize the right fungus and then they specifically uh, grow the, the species that they're used to, to grow and that they have adapted to grow. Yeah, but they should be exposed to multiple different types of spores out in the environment, right? Like, where does this fungus grow normally? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, so the, the fungi do not grow elsewhere. So so uh, from uh, mature colonies, you will have uh, mushrooms uh, produced by the fungus uh, in the termites, not in the ants. And these mushrooms spread uh, sexual spores to the environment, which means that that there's likely spores of, of a number of different um, fungal species in the environment that the termites will then uh, bring back to the nest. Um, but then only the one that they, only spores from the species that they are adapted to use will actually successfully establish and ultimately dominate this community of fungi. And then you go from a mix from the beginning of different fungal clones to having a single monoculture of the species that the termites the termite species is adapted to uh, to maintain. So it's so you're absolutely right. It's not coincidental. It might be coincidental what comes in in the beginning, but then uh, natural selection has has adapted the termites to be only be able to utilize this uh, specific fungus. So there's no evidence of this fungus being around in nature. It's only found in termite nests. Yeah. So there's no evidence that it exists elsewhere. No. Well, how do nests interact? Do they? You know, how do termites? I mean, it. I guess one obvious path is the new king and queen have their own fungus that they take with them. But how does it get into another colony? Do you, like, are there colonies with no fungus? Are there colonies with different types of fungus? So in some species, so the kings and queens, when they will come from different nests when they fly out and then uh, they find each other and start a new nest. And then in some species, either the queen uh, will bring a small bit of fungus in her gut or the king will do so. And then you get the fungus transmitted from generation to generation like that. But uh, in most species, it seems like it's this uh, this process where it's the first workers of the new nest that uh, goes into the environment 
and brings back the um, substrate that then has these spores. So this this will of course mean that some some will not be successful in actually establishing. So because it's a very it's a fragile period of time in the colony life, and they will have to get the fungus garden established, otherwise the colony will die. So in addition to many of these kings and queens will be killed, either eaten by predators or they will uh, they will succumb to in- fungal infections in this early start early period of their lives but from the and then from the colonies where where the king and queen both survive then uh, it's it's um, it's likely that or very likely that that only a, a fraction will actually make it to get a fungus garden and 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 ultimately um, grow to maturity so many will likely die at these early stages and this is also so you could say that this is of course a bit of a waste but it's in a way this the same way as when we have you know, when trees send out millions and millions of pollen, only a few will actually fertilize uh, or a few seeds will, will germinate and, and generate a new tree. And the same way the termite colonies will send out thousands of prospective new kings and queens, and only a small fraction of them will actually make it to, uh, to establish a nest and, uh, and have a mound that, that grows to maturity to then reproduce again by producing new its own males and females. Is there any evidence of fungal competition? So a king and a queen, I would think that a lot of times they would both have a little bit of fungus in them. Um, they yeah, start so a new colony together. Is there competition among the fungus? I mean, even if it's the Actually, same fungus, yeah. there would yeah, be epigenetic changes in the fungus in two different nests, and then it comes together, and then what happens? That's a very good point, and that's actually so. That's that's precisely why we think that it's either only the king or the queen that brings the fungus. So, so you would you would expect that if you have uh, if they both bring a fungus, then they would compete for the for being the the, the one that dominates in the in the colony, uh, and and this is essentially. Well, similar logic as to why we only have mitochondria being transmitted from the maternal line in in us, for example, but uh, but not from the from the father, and uh, essentially to avoid competition. So, uh, so natural selection has likely led to this um, to to making sure that there's only one parent that brings it, likely to prevent this competition. And then in one case, so it's evolved independently twice, and in one case it was then the the queen that ended up with the fungus. In the other case, uh, it was the the king kind of supporting this this idea that you would only have um, uniparental transmission. Well, if the workers are exposed to spores out of the environment and that theory is right, then wouldn't they continuously be bringing in fungi that are different from the one that are in the nest? So there'd be a continual competition, I would think. Yeah, that's a very good point too. Um, so then, so that's also why it was initially a little bit, it was a bit puzzling why you would bring in uh, different fungal clones and the explanation likely is that it's beneficial for the termites to bring in different fungal clones in this early stages where the fungus garden needs to be established and then basically let the fungi compete with each other and then the best the one the fungus that will grow the best and produce most new spores that for inoculation of the new substrate will then be the one that outcompetes the others and this is what seems to be the case so this seems to have been selected for because it then allows the termites to essentially shop for a range of different fungal clones and then let the environment so the and and their of course also what what the termites do what substrate is available what they bring in the specific environmental conditions within the combs etc 
select for which fungus is the best one given the environmental conditions and the and the host association. So this is uh, so that's the idea for why this has been selected for over evolutionary time. Well, if you look at different nests, what uh, does the condition of the fungus look like? Are the species the same? You know, do termite nests happen in very different conditions? Some are you know moister, some are hotter. I know they build their mounds to try to control the environment, but is the condition yeah. of a mound very different amongst mounds? Within the same termite species, probably quite uh, quite consistent between mounds because they they, as you say, regulate extremely well so to both humidity, uh, temperature, uh, carbon dioxide levels, etc. So, so within a termite species, they will likely be uh, very similar. So that also means that, and that's also why you see that a specific termite species is associated with one, likely one in most cases, possibly a few closely related species of fungus uh, in some cases. So you have quite a narrow set of of potential fungal uh, symbionts. But then if you compare across termite species in general, so there are about 330 described fungus farming termite species, then you see quite quite big differences in the conditions and also in which fungal species you see. So at the moment, there are about 40 termitomyces, the species, so this uh, the mutualistic fungus species, and they specifically associate with uh, with uh, with specific termites, uh, genera, or species. So likely driven exactly by this combination of, of uh, conditions, what being able to survive gut passage, which they need to as well, of the specific termite host they associate with. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, have you observed any pathology in the, the fungus in various termite colonies? And can you figure out why there is such, like, are there diseases that affect the fungi in certain colonies or in certain ones it just fails to flourish for some reason? It's, uh, yeah, that's, we've, we've explored that quite a bit because it, it's kind of fundamentally seems puzzling that there shouldn't be diseases. And, and uh, we haven't really come up with any good candidates that seem to have any effect on otherwise functioning nests. But what we, what we do know is that there's, um, there's a specific fungal species that uh, that seems to be quite common with the alates, so these when kings and queens flies, so they they will often get fungal infections, one of these insect enteropathogenic fungi. And then we know that even if colonies look healthy, there are other fungi in there that are just completely suppressed, so they don't grow. But then if the colony is compromised, for example, by an aardvark or if the termites die and the fungus is left un, uh, unmanaged, then these other fungi will proliferate very quickly. So uh, so it seems that rather than having a pathogenic strategy, these fungi have actually evolved to have kind of a stowaway life cycle or life history, which means that they enter and they are not completely removed, but they're also not imposing any any symptoms or any, uh, or any disease outbreaks until there's an opportunity, for example, if the termites die or you get this uh, the mound uh, disturbed heavily for one reason or another. And then they uh, proliferate very quickly and can then spread their own spores to the environment and ultimately come in to other mounds uh, when, the, when the termites forage for substrate. So this suggests that indeed there are organisms that take advantage of these this accumulation of resources, but not in a way as we see it in diseases in humans, for example, or as, as the way we see it in the ants, where you have a where you have a strong effect of infections in, in colonies and this constant battle of, of suppression. So it's only well, when... Well, have, um, have people tried to culture... This? I mean, what's the name of the fungus, by the way, that grows there? And have people tried to culture it on their own in the lab? Yeah, tomatomyces. 
the beneficial fungus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so if have, have, have you to, have you tried to culture it? Yeah, like have you tried to culture it in your lab or yeah? So we, I mean, or... we can we can grow it on uh, in on artificial media, uh, not as mushrooms, but as mycelium, uh, and we do that for for a range of different projects, looking both at and actually also testing at the moment um, if this fungus has uh, antimicrobial compounds itself that could inhibit other things from growing, which seems to be the case. What of course would be really ideal is if we could grow. Uh, somehow grow mushrooms and um, because these mushrooms are very delicious and they're very high in protein so it's actually the more protein rich than uh, than chicken meat and it's healthier for uh, for human consumption and also um, very tasty but that hasn't been possible to do yet and that's probably because we basically don't know well enough exactly what the conditions are within the fungus growing termite mound that uh, are required for the mushrooms to form. But it is something that we, uh, we, we would like to explore more. And I have also collaborations in, uh, in uh, Nigeria and elsewhere where we are talking about if we can try to mimic the condition, these conditions in order to, um, to create an artificial environment where we could uh, potentially get mushrooms forming. Because it could be... So, when, uh, so, when you, so the only way to get mushrooms is to have the termites cultivate them. Humans can't do it? At the moment, humans can do it, cannot do it, no. So that's the only way. So, uh, so people, especially in rural Africa, they're quite important for the, for the, for the local economies and different termite species or the fungus from different termite species will, will um, make mushrooms at different times during the year. So you can almost have mushrooms all year round, but it will be from different, uh, different minimizer species because of the differences in the life history. And, and basically, uh, when uh, when people find a, a colony, a found a, find a mound, uh, you will have because these colonies can get at least five to seven, possibly up to to fifteen to twenty years old. You will basically have mushrooms coming every year from the same nest. So uh, so when people find them, they are also very protective of them. So uh, which in a sense is also good for us, both good and bad. It's good for us and that people don't get rid of them, um, as we often do with termites, of course. Uh, but um, but they're also a bit hesitant to let us dig into these colonies because they're worried that we might uh, prevent the, the colonies from uh, producing mushrooms again. So again, you uh, people cannot get them to make mushrooms. You have to have a termite colony do it in order to get the mushroom phase, right? Yeah. So what what do you think is being passed to the uh, you know from the termites to the fungi to or what what do you think signals the fungi to go into the fruiting body stage? I mean, usually I thought it's I thought it's consumption of the substrate, but it sounds like there's more to it than that. Yeah, that's also a very good question. I mean, the um, it's probably a combination of different things. So the uh, so mushrooms will typically form shortly after the alates, so these kings and queens have left the mound, which led us to speculate that maybe it's a question of basically having less termites eating from the fungus that then means that you don't have the suppression of mushrooms, but then the fungus can uh, can produce the mushroom. But it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like this is the full story, at least, because these the, the fungus normally in these gardens make these small nodules, these small balls of mycelium. That is what the termites uh, feed on, and this is what we see in most uh, in most um, fungus gardens. But then occasionally you see these uh, these differently shaped uh, nodules that are more pointy, and this seems to really be the primordial for for the mushrooms, so the starting point for these mushrooms. So it seems to be a different pathway to having the, the mushroom form than it is the normal nodules that feed the termites. But of course, a lot of things likely change when you have a reduction in the the let's see like the 
the number of, of uh, termites present within the mound. So you would have a reduction in, in uh, of course, activity and grooming and, and eating of the fungus, but you would likely also have differences in CO2 levels, imagining if all of a sudden 10,000 individuals leave the nest. Uh, so, the, so it could very well be a trigger like that that elicits the starting point of the primordium. And uh, what we would really like to do um, is to monitor the environment within the fungus gardens. And this is something we're planning, but this has been delayed because of Corona to, to monitor this airspace around the fungus comb to see what the composition is, for example, what oxygen levels, carbon dioxide levels and, and volatile compounds from the fungus uh, actually are around in this environment. And it would be ideal to check or to test if this, or what changes significantly before or in this process where you before the alates fly out until you get um, the mushrooms forming to see if we can explore what conditions um, these different actions are associated with. Okay, very good. What, what do you expect in the next year or two that you're going to figure out? Are you close on any of these these questions we talked about? So some of the, the aspects that we, uh, so like I mentioned, there are several things kind of in the, in the pipeline. And one of the things that we are working a lot on at the moment is um, is fungal genome. So we have um, sequenced 25 or so of these semitomyces genomes, and we're looking at now exploring uh, the, basically the, what the genes they encode for, including also these enter, potential antimicrobials. So, so I think we will have a we'll have a much better idea of the potential for the fungus to contribute to um, to defending itself essentially from from competitors within within these mounds, and hopefully be able to also uh, obtain these. Um, headspace uh, measurements of, of compounds um, in the air around them. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work in general? Where can they go? Well, so we always, uh, so we have both a Facebook page. Um, so the group that I lead is called the Social and Symbiotic Evolution Group uh, at the University of Copenhagen. And um, we both have a website and a Facebook site, a page as well. And um, you're more than welcome to, to follow us there. Uh, so we post both, or mainly we post on new publications, uh, uh, projects either that have been finalized or upcoming or if we're looking for master students things like that uh, or if we have new positions in the group okay well very good well michael thank you for coming it's uh i guess some would consider it arcane but it's really interesting what you're working on so thank you well thank you very much if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.